All right. Uh, so we are, for, for those of you who are new and visiting with us this morning, just to catch up, we're working through Jesus's life in chronological order. A lot of times when you go through Jesus's life, you're looking at a book by book, but we wanted to look at it in order of what it happened. And so last time we preached on this, we were looking, we were in Matthew 16, um, when Peter declares Jesus is Lord. And then we did some follow-up videos uh, in this last week. And this morning we're going to be in Matthew 18, if you want to turn there. Uh, we're looking at really, it's not a fun topic, but it's something that we need to understand how to do properly if we're going to function as the body of Christ the way it's intended to. We're looking at this idea of confronting sin in fellow believers. In Matthew 18, it'll be verses 12 through 35. We're not going to read all of it. What we're going to do is as we look at different topics, we'll read a section and we'll look at what we see and we'll work through this passage in this way. But when you're considering Matthew 18, this is really, keep in mind throughout this, is that this is really looking at a body of believers. This is not confronting sin in the world around us. This is not a mandate to go stand on the corner and yell at the people who pass by. This is not even confronting sin in the national church or the international church. This is looking at when an individual believer wrongs you, when someone, when a brother or sister sins against you, what is the response to this? And so, like I said, it's not a fun topic, but it's a necessary topic because we need to be able to do this appropriately to be the body of Christ as we're meant to be. So before we begin, if you would, please join me in prayer. Lord, thank you for your forgiveness. And thank you for the guidance of the Holy Spirit that there was no coordinating between Image and myself into what songs they would sing and when they would sing them. And you organized that playlist. And you organized so that the final thought of a time of beautiful worship, of lifting our hearts to you, was a testimony to the sweetness of your forgiveness. And how desperately we need that. And so, God, now as we open your word, let this be truly your word and your words. If it comes from me, they'll be dead and uninspired, and this will be a waste. So let this be from you. Let this be through you, and Lord, let this be for your glory. Let this be for the magnification and the, the glorification of your name, that you would be lifted up and praised in the hearts of the people. And we trust you to lead us, to teach us, to open our eyes, to see and understand so that we can continually more and more look like Christ. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. So we're in Matthew 18, and as we, as we start to read, I want you to keep three themes in mind, okay? We're going to be looking at, oh, that's, see, so the people who go here know I'm technologically challenged, and I just turned the camera on. All right, there we go. All right, so we're looking at Matthew 18, 12 through 35. I want, to keep, I want you to keep three themes in mind. I want you to keep in, in mind this idea of God's heart and desire. First and foremost, Scripture is about the Lord. Everything points to God's glory. So as we read through these passages, as we look at these verses, keep in mind, what do we learn about God's heart in this passage as Jesus is talking? And then secondly, God's heart and desire should directly shape our approach to confronting sin in the life of believers. So keep in mind, how does what Jesus is saying and teaching show how we are to approach fellow believers? And really, that approach to fellow believers that is shaped by God's heart and desire reflects what our motivation ought to be. And so those are the three ideas that we're going to look at this morning. And I want to be begin in Matthew 12 or Matthew 18, verse 12. What do you think? If a man, this is Jesus speaking, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep 
and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take along one or two others with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And so what's the first thing we see there? As you're considering this idea of confronting sin in fellow believers, keep in mind, these are not passages that can be separated. This is one continual conversation for Jesus and the disciples. He goes right from if a sheep has gone astray to if a brother sins against you. And so what we see in this, what we see first and foremost, and really what you see throughout Scripture as a whole, is that God's heart is always for restoration. This is what He desires. This is what He wants. We sinned. We sinned against God. We were separated by our sin. And God in His love sent Christ as a means of redemption. Why? for the restoration of that relationship. So as we're considering this idea, this notion of confronting sin within the body, sin against us personally, the first thing we see is that God's heart is for restoration. And when we look at Scripture as a whole, is the other thing to keep in mind is Scripture is one cohesive narrative. Every part ties into every other one. It supports itself. And this is something that God has been telling His people throughout the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 33, He lays it out plainly. God speaking says, And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus have you said, Surely our transgressions and our sin are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? So God is saying, Look, say to the people of Israel, Your sins are rotting you away. You know this. You recognize this. You have strayed from the flock. Keep in mind, when Jesus is talking about the flock, He is talking from the perspective of, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. So he's saying your sins, you recognize that they are causing you to rot away. You recognize that they have led you astray. And he says to the people of Israel, the people of Israel say, how then shall we live? And see, one of the things that breaks my heart is that there are so many myths about God that are out there. And you hear this thing, right? He's just a kid with a magnifying glass looking to burn the anthill. Or you hear that he's angry at you and he doesn't want you back, right? That, and no, because the plain and simple truth of God's heart is that when he looks at this idea of a sheep who has left the flock, when he looks at this idea of Israel who have sinned and gone astray, who are rotting away in their transgressions, how then shall we live? God lays it out. He goes on to say in Ezekiel 33, still there, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back for your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Throughout Scripture, God demonstrates that His heart is for restoration. It's what He wants. It's what He desires. Elsewhere, if you look into the New Testament, he says, it says, The Lord is not slow to act as we understand slowness, but He is patient, bearing with us so that none may perish, but all will come to repentance. We say things like, especially 2020 was, I've said this before to our church family, 2020 was not a fun year. Nobody's under any illusions, right? We don't want to relive 2020. And you heard people say, oh, if only God would hurry up and come back. And yes, make no mistake, we should long for Jesus' return. The Bible is abundantly clear on that. We should desire Christ's return with all of our heart. 
But there is mercy every single day that Jesus does not come back because it is God being patient with us, giving people time to repent and be restored to Him. You see it throughout Scripture and hear Jesus talking to His disciples about the idea of one member of the flock straying, of one brother or sister sinning against another. Jesus lays out from the start that the heart of the shepherd is for restoration. And so logically, in my mind, if the heart of the shepherd, if the heart of Christ is for restoration, what does that mean for me? Well, that's pretty obvious. Then my heart should be for restoration. We should seek restoration. If God seeks restoration, we should seek restoration. And again, this is not something that just occurs in Jesus' words. Consider, consider other verses. You have Galatians 6.1, and we'll look at even further passages, but let's start with Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And again, keep in mind, we're so quick to try and look at convicting the world around us. We're so quick at, well, I want to point out the sin to the world around. No, this is written to the church. This is a, inter this is a family affair. This is, we're sitting around the dinner table. We're talking about family matters. If a brother sins against you, Jesus says, if a brother sins against you, pursue him. Galatians 6.1, if a brother is caught in transgression, pursue them. Seek to restore them with a spirit of gentleness. It's not a restoration of I'm better. I, I use people, Dan, you're in the front row and I know your first name. It's not, I can't wait to point out to Dan how much better I am than him. That's why I'm going to go, Dan did something wrong. I'm going to go talk to Dan so he knows I'm holier than him. It's, I love Dan. I care about Dan. I'm going to approach Dan with a heart of gentleness. I'm going to approach Dan with a genuine desire to love him, to be there for him, to be merciful to him, so that we can see Dan restored. So that what's it say in and what's it say in Matthew? Go to him individually, and if he repents, then you have found a brother. You have had the relationship repaired. This is the heart. If, if Jesus approaches our brokenness, our sin, with a heart of mercy and love, seeking restoration, we have no excuse to approach those who sin against us in any other way. And Jesus doesn't just leave it in the theoretical. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, this is how you are to do it. He goes on to give very practical steps as to what that looks like. And so this will be a message that has the theoretical, that has the theological of the heart behind restoration, but it's also, it's an incredible blessing because Jesus lays it out for us very clearly. And step one is you go to the person privately. And this is an idea that occurs, I mean, goodness, look not to your own self-interest, but always consider others more than yourselves. Do everything out of humility. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Scripture is abundantly clear that in our lives, our mindset should be, what is the best thing I can do for my brother? There's Neil. When I consider Neil, I need to consider Neil with what is the most loving way I can approach Neil, regardless of what may have happened. And if I sin against Neil, I made Dan the bad guy in the first, I'll make myself the bad guy in this example. If I sin against Neil, Neil needs to look at me and say, okay, what is the most loving way to approach Sam? Even when he has sinned against me, Jesus says, he says, if anyone sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Because that is the way that Neil can respect me best. Rather than going on Facebook and going, let me tell you what Sam did to me. No, Neil approaches me individually because that is the most loving and respectful way to consider who I am as his brother in Christ. 
And so that's step one. If someone sins against you, if there is wrong done against you, and again, this is not on a large scale. This is a micro scale. This is a wrong done against you personally by a brother or sister in Christ. Approach them personally seeking that restoration. But what happens if they don't repent? Because keep in mind, repentance is essential as we move through this. And so then you look at step two. And in step two, we have, Jesus goes on to say, he says, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established in the evidence of two or three witnesses. And once again, this is something that we see throughout scripture. So first, so I've wronged Neil, Neil approaches me on his own. And he lays out, Sam, I love you, that's why I came to you privately. You did this, you wronged me, you have sinned against me. And I say, no, no, forget it, man. I, I'm still on the right. My pride doesn't let me repent, my blindness, whatever it is, I deny what Neil has offered me in love. So now Neil goes and he brings two or three trustworthy witnesses. This is not an invitation to just grab anybody off the street and turn this into a gossip affair. This is bring along two or three trustworthy witnesses and again, offer this person the chance at repentance. Deuteronomy 19.15, as God is giving the people of Israel, this is how you are to live. This is how you are to function as my people. And keep in mind, in these Old Testament books, at the start of the Old Testament, God is laying out how you are to be consecrated, how, are you, how you are to be set apart from the people around you to show that you are my people and I am your God. In Deuteronomy 19.15, we see a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he's, he has committed. A single witness does not suffice in any offense that they've committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. 1 Timothy 5, 19 through 20. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. And in 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20, you see this step and a future step, but I want to focus on this current step, step two. The Old Testament, do not accept a charge against someone except with two or three witnesses. New Testament, do not admit a charge against someone except with two or three witnesses. Jesus speaking to his disciples, if your brother or sister denies you that first initial personal repentance, now bring in two or three witnesses. Because now this is revealing a heart that's unwilling to repent. This is a serious matter. This is not something you treat lightly. Okay? Because that's, that's an idea that has pervaded our society. Is that, well, I'll just be done with them. I gave them their one chance, right? One and done. I gave them their chance. They said, no, I'm done with them. I blocked them on Facebook. I deleted their number. And I deleted their number intentionally so when they text me, I can send back, hey, sorry, new number, who's this? And then they'll know what I really think of them. No, 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 it's they denied that first initial attempt. Okay, so now you go back with two or three witnesses, but what are you still doing? You are still pursuing restoration of the relationship. You are still pursuing a returning of the relationship to what it is meant to be. You're not bringing in the two or three witnesses to shame and scorn that person. You're bringing it back so that you can still pursue restoration. And that's step two that Jesus lays out. And then step three that Jesus lays out for us. If again, the person, nope, I still don't want to hear it from two or three witnesses. I'm still not going to accept that I need to repent that this is wrong. What does Jesus say? He says, if he still refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And this is again in 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20, verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. So step one, Neil approaches me, Sam, you wronged me, you sinned against me. Nope, you're crazy. Neil comes back with two or three trustworthy witnesses. Sam, look, lay it out. You, you sinned against me. You've wronged me. Nope, you're all three crazy. Okay, now we're going to bring in the church. 
Well, what are we bringing the church in for? We're not bringing in the church to shame them. It says, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. And that's not a fear like I'm afraid the church is going to criticize me and come against me. It's that it's a holy fear of recognizing, okay, Neil has tried to restore the relationship with Sam. Sam is persisting in refusing to allow that to happen. Sam is refusing to repent. This is not good. This is not holy. You need to recognize that Sam's behavior in refusing to repent is unacceptable. And again, this is something that we see throughout Scripture. Look at 2 Corinthians. And this is Paul writing. And this is at the end of 2 Corinthians 12, starting in the very last verse. 21. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented. See, that's a key. One of the things I say regularly is every detail in the Bible is important and there for a reason. Paul says, look, I'm afraid. I'm going to have to come back and mourn. I am grieved by unrepentance. This bothers me. This weighs on me heavily. So even when the church is involved on a large scale, it is still from a heart of gentleness. It is still from a heart of love and mercy, desiring restoration of the relationship. Paul says, I fear that I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. This is the third time I am coming to you. What do we see in Jesus' steps? Step one, step two, step three. What do we see in Paul's steps? Step one, step two, step three. Everything in the Bible supports each other. It's there for a reason. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. And that leads us, one, it ties in the first two steps, and it demonstrates that there is a process to this. There's a very practical order to approaching a brother or sister who sins against you. Give them a chance privately. Give them a chance with two or three witnesses. Now bring the church in. And side note, that's why I think it's absolute folly when Christians try to say they don't need the local church. I mean, how in the world are you going to bring the church in if you don't belong to a local body? We were given to one another for a reason. And at times it may be for accountability such as this. But for the individual Christian to say, no, no, I've graduated from church. I've gotten to the place where I don't need church. That's absolute rubbish. And so Paul lays out, he says, okay, I've done this, I've done that. And then he says, look, if I come again, I'm not going to spare you. And what did Jesus say? When you consider this idea of step four, what happens if they persist in refusing to repent. Nope. Neil tried to do it privately. Neil tried to do it with witnesses. Neil tried to bring the church in. And I continued to refuse. Well, then do we get to be done with them? Then do we get to block them? Then do we get to remove them from our lives? What does Jesus say? I love the detail Jesus says. He says, okay, if they refuse, if they continue, going back to Matthew 18, he says, if they continue to be unrepentant, then consider them as a tax collector and a Gentile. Who was Jesus' ministry largely spent with? Who did Jesus say he came to save? Who did Jesus spend his time? I mean, they accused him. They said, look at this man. Don't take him seriously. He's a friend of tax collectors and Gentiles. Jesus is not saying if they continue to be unrepentant, then you just write them off as a lost cause and abandon them. Jesus is saying if they continue to be unrepentant, okay. So now they're an evangelistic prospect to you. You're never done with them. You don't get to a point where you're like, yep, well, they're on their own. Hope they figure it out. 
I don't want anything to do with them. It's, no, okay, this still grieves me. What did Paul say? I, I mourn over this. Paul was bothered by this. But if a brother or sister who refuses to repent from their personal wrong, despite all opportunities, nope, not going to do it, you don't kick them out. You don't say, okay, fine, we want nothing to do with you. You say, okay, now this is someone to evangelize. This is someone to introduce to Jesus. This is someone to now pursue. We were pursuing restoration of relationship between Neil and I. They're seeing an unrepentant heart in me, so now they're pursuing restoration of me with Jesus. Okay, something's going on in your life where you are refusing to repent of this, so now we're going to treat you like a Gentile and a tax collector who, keep in mind, Jesus is talking to a group of people that knew that was who Jesus spent his days with. Talking to, reaching out to, loving the people that the rest of society had written off. You're a tax collector. We want nothing to do with you. You're a Gentile. We want nothing to Jesus. No, those are the people I came for. Those are the people I love because that's who God loves. This is who my ministry is to. And Jesus says if someone persists in unrepentance, that's how you now view this person. You don't boot them from your life. You don't write them off as a lost cause, as hopeless. And it goes back to, remember, this whole conversation is one conversation. It goes back to, the shepherd pursued the one sheep. The goal for God is always restoration. The goal for us must always be restoration. And what drives this in us? What is, what is the motive? So you've got, you've got God's heart and desire. Remember those first themes from the beginning. God's heart and desire is for restoration. So that dictates our approach, which is always perpetually seeking restoration. Why? What's our motivation in that? We'll look at the rest of the conversation that Jesus goes on to have with his disciples. So he says, if your brother sins against you, he goes through, he lays out the steps, right? And then you jump down to verse 21 and it says, then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? See, this is Peter asking, okay, when, when do I have permission to write him off? When do I have permission to boot them from my life? When can I just be done with them? Jesus, I know you just talked about, you know, pursue them, pursue them, pursue them, but when, when can I just finally wipe my hands of them and be done with them? Seven times? He's proud of himself. And Jesus says, no, I, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And he goes on to give a parable of two servants. And there's a, a I'm going to keep using Dan and Neil. I'm going to use myself. So, Neil, you'll get to keep being the good guy in this. Dan and I both owe Neil a large sum of money. I owe, I owe Neil like 10 years worth of my salary, right? Or Dan owes me, sorry. I owe Neil 10 years worth of salary. I go to Neil. I say, Neil, I can't repay this. I can't possibly repay this. Have mercy on me. And Neil says, okay, I forgive you. I forgive you your debt. And then I leave and I'm like, wow, Neil forgave my debt. That's incredible. And then I meet Dan who owes me 10 bucks. I'm like, hey, man, like you got to pay up that 10 bucks, right? And Dan's like, well, I, I don't have 10 bucks. Like, can't you just forgive me? And I, who have just come from being forgiven a massive, unpayable debt, say to Dan, nope, you're going to jail. And I'm going to seize your house. I'm going to seize your, your wife and your kids. I'm going to seize your car until you give me my 10 bucks. And I love, listen to this detail. So, that, so this is catching us up on the parable of Jesus. Listen to verse 31. Remember, this is Jesus speaking to the disciples. And so he's talking about a group of people who have watched Sam be forgiven a large debt, and then forget, for, refuse to forgive a small debt. And Jesus says, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. See, this goes back to Paul's heart. 
This goes back to the heart of gentleness. Galatians 6.1, if anyone is caught in transgression, seek to restore him with a spirit of gentleness. Paul says, I mourn over the idea that you are unrepentant. And what are the servants? When they see me, when you all see me refuse to forgive Dan, it grieves you. It does not make you feel better than me. It does not give you a position to look down on me. It grieves you that I who received forgiveness am unwilling to show forgiveness. Why? Because your hearts, the hearts of the servants, are for that restoration and that forgiveness, that spirit of gentleness that we see in Galatians, that we saw in Corinthians, that we saw that God talked about back in Ezekiel. Because it reflects God's heart. Because what does the master go on to say? The master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? So what drives us in this? Well, it's plain and simple. Because we are called to reflect Christ. 1 John 2.6 Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. John 13.15 For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. And these are just two verses we could have easily gone to. The Lord says, Be holy for I am holy. Love one another and say when I have loved you. In this parable, you should have had mercy because I had mercy on you. So what drives us in pursuing restoration? What should be the motivation? Well, it's plain and simple because the standard in the life of the Christian is to look like Jesus Christ. There's no way around it. That is, that is we don't get A and B. Nope, the standard is to look like Jesus, to love like Jesus, to live like Jesus, to show mercy like Jesus. And we won't do it perfectly, make no mistake. Fully aware of that. But that doesn't mean I rate or I lower the bar. It doesn't mean I set a lesser goal for myself other than the heart of Christ. Because I, if I say I abide in Him, 1 John 2.6, whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way he walked. It doesn't say most of the time. It doesn't say when you've had a good day. It doesn't say when you got a raise at work and you're in a good mood. It says no. You say you abide in Jesus' heart, then you walk as Jesus walked. You have mercy as God had mercy on us. This is what drives us in pursuing the restoration. Because in everything we are seeking to do, we are seeking to show Christ to the world that so desperately needs a Savior. And so we offer forgiveness. We offer gentleness. We offer compassion. We offer kindness. Not seven times, but 70 times seven times. And if they persist, then we treat them as an evangelistic prospect. Why? Because this is how God approached us. I mean, really? Well, but Sam, you're, I'm still not tracking. Yeah, God's merciful. Yeah, God's kind. But when it comes to wrongdoing, there's pain in that. There's deep pain in that. Is this really the standard that God himself laid out for us? Well, let's look at Scripture. My answer is always going to be, what does Scripture say about who God is? Isaiah 43.25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. Colossians 2, 13-14, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Colossians 3, 13, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. 
So when you consider that we are to walk as Jesus walked, specifically with the issue of transgressions, Scripture is equally abundantly clear that at every turn, God forgave. That God offered forgiveness. That God offered this chance at restoration of the relationship out of His heart of love for us. And that's really what it boils down to. And this is the final thought that Jesus concludes with in this section. He brings it back to the heart of the, of the servant. He brings it back to the heart of the disciples, the heart of those listening. Chapter 18, verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And that's hard. That's a difficult thing. But again, this is the standard that we are called to as Christians. Matthew 12, 34 for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. John 13, 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. The forgiveness comes from a heart of love. A heart that recognizes we have been so greatly and perfectly loved. That we have been forgiven. And so with that same heart, we now forgive. And this is hard. I'm going to share with you guys a story about this in my own life. We were in, uh, we were attending a church with, and there's going to be, I mean, we've got Mansfield Christian School here, okay? I promise I'm not, I'm, I'm literally talking about my testimony. We were attending a church that had a school attached to it, private Christian school. My brother's teacher was a good family friend. Over to our house for dinner, we hung out with him. This was somebody our family liked and trusted. He was molesting my brother and many other boys in the class. This was going on for a long time. And it finally came out. And when we finally learned about it, it was devastating. The pain is real. The trauma that is inflicted is real. There's no denying that. Forgiveness is not pretending that the pain never happened. Forgiveness is not denying that a very real sin occurred. This, this was terrible. And as we progress through this, as we process through this as a family, and my parents worked through forgiving this man. His name was Ty Whitney. Never forget the name. I can still picture him. Ty Whitney, as my parents forgave him, they talked to me about it, saying, where are you with this? It didn't happen against you personally. This is still my brother, right? I felt, I felt the guilt of, as an older brother, why have I not protected my younger brother? I was angry at my parents. Why did you not protect my brother? I was angry at God, like, God, are you kidding me? My dad, he's serving as an elder at the church. He's on the school board. My mom's like the head of the PTA. Like, all they're doing is pouring themselves into this body of people, and this is, this is what happens? God, you've got to be kidding me. I was angry. And every time I was talked to about forgiveness, my response was, yeah, yeah, whatever. That's good for them. That's good for them, not for me. I can't, you can't forget what somebody did to a kindergartner and a first grader like that. No. No, forget this. And it was miserable. It's not fun. It, it is not at all fun holding on to bitterness and anger and hatred for years. And it got to a point freshman year of college where God called me on the carpet about it. And there was a chapel session about forgiveness, and I tried to leave, and a hand held me in place. And I turned around to hit the guy behind me who wouldn't let me get up and leave. And he looked at me like I was crazy, like, dude, I didn't touch you. And I tried to get up again, and a hand held me in place. And once again, the guys on the sides of me, the guys behind me, nobody touched me. I was frozen in that seat to hear that message on forgiveness. 
And when it ended, I sprinted. I mean, I was the first one out of those doors. And I went into the garden right next to our chapel, and I just, I just, I had it out. I let out my anger. I let out my pain, my bitterness, my frustration. And it got to a point where I was so broken and devastated. And I didn't pray, God, teach me to forgive this man. I got to a point, I was literally on my knees, sobbing into a garden bench. And I said, God, I'm sick of carrying this bitterness and this anger. I want to forgive him, but I can't. Not unless I have your heart for him. And that was when the change happened. It was that prayer of, Lord, I need to love Ty Whitney the same way you do. I need your heart for Ty Whitney because I need to realize that I have been forgiven by you. And it was in praying for the heart of the Lord to see Him as God saw Him that a few minutes went by and I was able to stand to my feet and say out loud, Ty Whitney, I forgive you. And the weight that lifted in that moment was incredible because it boiled down to my heart that refused to love this man in the same way that God loves me. I knew I could make the argument for forgiveness, but I refused to look at this man with the same heart that God looks at me. And it wasn't until the Holy Spirit had to convict me on this that change could happen in my life and that I could say, and genuinely mean, I forgive you. And that's what we're called to. We're called to a heart that loves like Jesus. What do those verses say? As I have loved you, so you love one another. As I forgave you, so you forgive one another. I pursue restoration with you, you pursue restoration with one another. This is our approach to personal wrongdoing. And like I said, make no mistake, I alluded to this earlier, there are several things that forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not tolerating and overlooking sin. If I wrong Neil, he's not supposed to just pretend like I'm not sinning because that's easier. Forgiveness is not pretending like sin doesn't exist. Forgiveness is not accepting sin and saying, oh, that's okay. We don't have to deal with it. No, forgiveness is acknowledging sin. Forgiveness is not denying experienced pain. If Neil forgives me, when I forgave Mr. Whitney, the pain of what he did didn't just disappear. It wasn't like when I forgave him, everything that happened was gone. Forgiveness is not denying the pain that sin causes. And forgiveness is also not living in foolishness. I asked, where's Tim? I asked Tim this. We had a, we had a meeting earlier this week. Tim's our treasurer. If anybody doesn't know Tim, Tim's our treasurer. And I made sure I could use him as an example for this. And for the record, I trust Tim completely. Complete integrity with Tim. If Tim stole every cent from our bank account as the treasurer, we should forgive him. We should. If Tim, as treasurer, took everything from us, we should forgive him. We should not reelect Tim to be treasurer if he apologizes. <laughs> that would be quite foolish. Forgiveness is not foolishness. See, the restoration as Jesus walked through with the disciples. If a brother sins against you, go to him privately and present the opportunity for restoration. If they refuse to repent, bring witnesses. If they refuse to repent, bring the whole church. If they refuse to repent, treat them as an evangelistic prospect. See, that restoration of the relationship, there must be re repentance on my part. There must be a, a repentance to restore the relationship. 
the forgiveness that Jesus goes on to describe in this parable of the two servants, there's no repentance. Forgiveness is not conditional upon, well, I'll forgive you once I feel like you've earned it. Forgiveness is, no, I offer this to you because I love you. It doesn't mean we behave foolishly. It doesn't mean we deny what happened. It doesn't mean we tolerate the sin. But it means that we set aside the anger and the bitterness as a driving force in our relationship with that person. You don't have to be best friends with them. I have no idea where Ty Whitney is to this day. I really don't. So forgiveness is not, okay, well, I need to ignore everything that happened and we need to start hanging out again. It's, no, I quite simply look at you with the same heart of love that God looks at me. And so I offer forgiveness. This is the model that Christ lays out for us. This is, this is the practical steps that Jesus presents to his disciples as to how to approach a brother or sister who wrongs you. And I can personally tell you, it's way easier to just listen to Jesus. I refused to listen to Jesus for 15 years. And it was, it was so much easier to just listen to Jesus and to forgive. Life got so much better. And the other thing, for those of you who are new, see, this is where they're not going to come back. I give homework every week. I really do. And so this week, as we consider this idea of forgiveness, as we consider this idea of looking at the world with love, read John 13, 34, and then read Genesis 37 and 39 through 45. And that's the story of Joseph. Is Joseph modeled a heart of forgiveness? Joseph not just forgave his, Joseph didn't only forgive his brothers, he then went out of his way to seek their good, to bless them, to love them. And so as we consider this heart of forgiveness, I want you to read the story of Joseph this week. Normally, community Bible church, you're getting off a little easy. Visitors, normally there's three items. There's a read, there's a practical do, and then there's some ideas for prayer. I don't know where you all stand with forgiveness. I, I really don't know. I don't know if you have someone in your life that you can't bring yourself to forgive. I don't know if you've been wronged by a brother or sister in Christ and you're still wrestling with that. So it's kind of hard for me to say you have to go out and approach someone. I don't know where you all are. Trusting that the Holy Spirit will guide you in this and will convict you in this if this is something that does need to be a conviction in your life. But the prayer, the prayer is simple. God, teach me to love as you do. The heart that you have for me, teach me to have that heart for the people who wrong me. The forgiveness you offer me, teach me to offer that forgiveness to others. Teach me to pursue restoration. Teach me to pursue people with a spirit of gentleness. When there is sin like Paul, teach me to mourn it, not gloat over it. And if they persist in unrepentance, teach me to not write them out of my life, but teach me to now view them as someone to witness to and to continue loving. Lord, give us this heart. Please join me in prayer. God, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for how kind you are to us. We thank you for how you forgive us. And Father, forgive us when we are unwilling to offer that same heart or to look at others with that same heart. Forgive us for when we think we're better than that. Forgive us for when we are the servant who had a great debt erased and then refused to do the same. Lord, we want your heart for the world. 
People need to look at your church and see a heart of gentleness and restoration for one another. Teach us how to look like Jesus in this. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.